Matthew chapter 16, starting at verse 1. The Pharisees and Sadducees came to Jesus and tested him by asking him to show them a sign from heaven. He replied, When the evening comes, you say, It will be fair weather, for the sky is red. And in the morning, Today it will be stormy, for the sky is red and overcast. You know how to interpret the appearance of the sky, but you cannot interpret the signs of the times. A wicked and adulterous generation looks for a miraculous sign, but none will be given it except the sign of Jonah. Jesus then left them and went away. When they went across the lake, the disciples forgot to take bread. Be careful, Jesus said to them, be on your guard against the yeast of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. They discussed this among themselves and said, It is because we didn't bring any bread. Aware of their discussion, Jesus asked, You of little faith, why are you talking among yourselves about having no bread? Do you still not understand? Don't you remember the five loaves for the five thousand, and how many basketfuls you gathered? Or the seven loaves for the four thousand, and how many basketfuls you gathered? How is it you don't understand that I was not talking to you about bread? But be on your guard against the yeast of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. Then they understood that he was not telling them to guard against the yeast used in bread, but against the teaching of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. When Jesus came to the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, Who do people say the Son of Man is? They replied, Some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and still others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. But what about you? he asked. Who do you say I am? Simon Peter answered, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Jesus replied, Blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for this was not revealed to you by man, but by my Father in heaven. And I tell you that you are... Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not overcome it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. Whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you lose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Then he warned his disciples not to tell anyone that he was the Christ. This is God's word. Let me have my welcome. Uh, my name is uh, Matt Fuller. I've probably not met everyone. It's uh, very lovely to have you here. And um, uh, hopefully you understand uh, a little bit about uh, the church. Do speak to the people next to you. If you are visiting, uh, we'd love it if you, you made this your home and your church family. Uh, you need us. We need you. That's how the Christian life works. So I hope um, uh, you'll be able to join and settle with us here as a family. Let me lead us in prayer as we begin to look at God's word. Our Father, we've sung wonderful intentions that our souls will praise you, that we want to sing uh, whatever the condition of the day or the night, if it's a daytime in our hearts or a nighttime of the soul. But Father, you know well that those words that we've sung will be nothing unless you work truths into our hearts. So we praise you that you're a speaking God, that your word has exceptional power, to transform us. So please be at work amongst us doing that by your spirit. Will you transform us so the things that we've sung 
become more true in our lives. This week, this month, this year we pray. For you are the one who is worthy of our glory and honour. And so please do this, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, Some will know, I used to be a school teacher in central London. And uh, as many schools would do, we uh, had our annual push to raise money for charity. And then every year, the sort of D-list celebrity would come in and uh, collect, you know, the big comedy check and uh, much shaking of hands, etc., etc. Now, one year, we did quite well. So the, the, the guy who came in, people not all would remember, but the chap's name collecting for the check was Kieran Brackham who was an England rugby international, briefly England captain of the uh, the rugby team, a very successful uh, player at Scrum Half. And um, I happened to be walking through the school reception as he arrived at the door. Now, the chap on the door uh, probably wasn't au fait with his sporting knowledge. He was a maths teacher, and um, there's nothing wrong with that. Um <laughs> Apologies, apologies, Richard. But uh, he was there at the door and somewhat uh, uh, dozy, um, wasn't really paying attention to what was going on. And Kieran Bracken was a young man uh, in his mid-twenties, wearing a blazer and a tie, much as the pupils in the sixth form would have done. So uh, uh, you know where we're going, don't you? <laughs> so in comes the England r- uh, rugby captain, and uh, Harold gr- greeted him at the door. Why are you late? I'm terribly sorry. I thought I was meant to be here at nine o'clock. Don't be cheeky. What's your name? (laughs) Oh, uh, Kieran Bracken? What form are you in, Bracken? (laughs) Uh, well, quite good, I think. Um, (laughs) Little disappointed I didn't make the Lions this summer, but quite good. At that point, Harold emerged from his register. Ah. <laughs> and I quickly uh, interspersed to say, ah, ha, ha, And um, all was fine. It was fine. He was very gracious about it and uh, realized not everyone is a rugby fan. And so all was well. All was well. Now, of course, it is a bit embarrassing if you in that sort of a scenario you get someone's identity wrong. But get Jesus' identity wrong and... That has massive consequences. But that is not embarrassing. That will determine how you live your life now. It will determine where you spend eternity. So getting the identity of Jesus right is probably the most significant, well, is undoubtedly the most significant recognition that you need to make in life. Who is Jesus? You've got to get that question right. Now, if you're joining us, uh, we're in Matthew's Gospel. We're in this section of Matthew's Gospel, uh, 40, chapters 14 to 18. You can see, I've just by way of reminder, at the bottom there, Matthew's Gospel, it sort of breaks down into a number of different sections. You know, they're stated, but these sections always end when Jesus had finished saying... And then we're into a slightly different section. So we're in chapters uh, 14 to 18. We've given the series, um, which we're in for a good chunk of this term, uh, the title, The Controversial Christ, because he says controversial things. And what is uh, the common theme running throughout this section, chapters 14 to 18, is a parting of the ways. So at this point, the religious authorities, as we'll see some of them in, in uh, the section tonight, the Pharisees and Sadducees, they become increasingly hostile and determined to kill Jesus. 
And yet his disciples grow in their recognition. So uh, tonight, chapter 16 and uh, verse 16, um, you, uh, you get this great recognition by Peter of the Christ. This is a significant little turning point uh, in the gospel we're looking at tonight. Who is Jesus? That's what it is. That's what the whole section's about. And uh, essentially there are two mistakes we'll see. Uh, don't demand signs, that would be a mistake. Beware the yeast, that would be a mistake, we will explain these. Um, but trust the confession, that's the right thing to do. So two mistakes to avoid, one thing to make sure you get right. Now of course some will sit here and think, I know who Jesus is. I've known that since I was three years old, of course. But unless you respond to him rightly as your king, which none of us do, then there's more to know, isn't there? We don't know him rightly. Who is Jesus? Three things then. The first is this. First mistake to avoid, uh, verses 1 to 4, don't demand signs. Don't demand signs. Chapter 16, verse 1. The Pharisees and Sadducees came to Jesus and tested him by asking him to show them a sign from heaven. Now it's very odd that these two are together, these two groups, the Pharisees and the Sadducees. They do not like one another. They are rival groups. But they come to Jesus and say, we want a sign from heaven. Now for many of us, we get that, I would imagine. Particularly if you wouldn't necessarily call yourself a Christian, or you're perhaps wobbling a little bit in the Christian faith. The cry, can I just have a sign? Can you just... Light up the sky. That will be very useful. Classically, if Jesus appeared here tonight, of course I believe in him, but he doesn't do that. That sort of demand for a sign, I guess we understand that. We might feel that. But Jesus is having none of it. So verse 2, he replied, When evening comes, you say it'll be fair weather, for the sky is red, and in the morning today it'll be stormy, for the sky is red and overcast. You know how to interpret the appearance of the sky. But... You cannot interpret the signs of the times. Now we have that silly little ditty in the UK, is it? Red sky at night, shepherds delight. Red sky in the morning, shepherds warning. That doesn't work in the UK. Our weather is far too unpredictable. But there, yeah, that's okay. Uh, in Palestine, in, in, yeah, you, that's okay. You can, the sky is a, a good indicator of what's going to take place. And Jesus says, you get that, that's obvious. But the signs of the times... You can't interpret them. Now, what's he talking about? What are the signs of the times? Well, I think quite simply, who he is and what he's been doing. So just very quickly, just this uh, in this section, he's given them plenty of signs, but there's an alternation in the section between rejection of Jesus and plenty of signs. So you just turn back, uh, just skim through the headings, the NIV there, okay, for this purpose. So chapter 14 It starts off at the end of chapter 13, a prophet without honor. Jesus is rejected. Chapter 14, John the Baptist beheaded. There's rejection of the truth. Then Jesus does miracles. He feeds 5,000. He walks on water. He heals plenty of people. Then chapter 15, there's rejection again. This section, clean and unclean. Chapter 15, 1 to 20, you get rejection of Jesus. And then he does miracles again. Chapter 15, verse 21, he heals the daughter of the Canaanite woman. He feeds again, 4,000 at this time. So you've got this alternating pattern. Rejection of Jesus. He performs signs. He heals. He feeds. He walks on water. And he says, "Can 
Do you not see what's happening here? You reject me. I'm doing signs. There's plenty of signs. But <clears throat> they're signs that you, Pharisees and Sadducees, should recognize. They're Old Testament signs. I'm healing the blind. I'm giving, uh, um, healing the lame. I'm giving hearing back to the deaf. Death. You should recognize these. These are things that the Messiah would do. Oh, there's plenty of signs, said Jesus. You should recognize who I am from the signs. And so he declines very strongly. Controversially, verse 4. A wicked and adulterous generation looks for a miraculous sign, but none will be given it except the sign of Jonah. Jesus then left them and went away. See, Jesus, he never did signs as self-promotion. You'd struggle pretty hard to read the gospel accounts and see Jesus sort of putting up a billboard. Come at six o'clock on Sunday, there'll be power and healings and miracles. You'll be amazed. He never does that. Never does that. He never promotes himself in that way. But those who come to him, he heals. He says, don't demand a sign from me. I've done plenty you should recognize me by. But I don't dance to your tune. You don't demand the terms. It's quite strong, isn't he? You wicked and adulterous generation. What does that mean, adulterous? You are faithless. You are deceitful. There's a dishonesty about you. He says, it's quite strong. He's certainly needling. But think of it in these terms. Imagine, imagine Bill Gates offers you a job. He's going to be our hero of the night. We'll come back to him. Bill Gates offers you a job and says, I'd like you to come and work for me. Doing what? I saw that out But I'd like you to come and work for me. £500,000 a year. How do you feel about that? Well, I've got student debts racking up. That sounds okay. Um, but first... Before I do that, can I, can you just perform a sign for me? Can you just take these pipe cleaners and sticky back plastic and, and microchips? Can you make a computer for me, please? Can you just perform a sign, Bill Gates? To which I think he might respond, who are you to ask me to do that? I have given you, offered you a phenomenal offer, a job for me, 500k a year, and to be honest with you, I think I've done enough to prove my worth. Heard of Microsoft? That'll be me. Ever used Word? Chalk that one up to me. Little spreadsheet? That's my baby. It's me. I think I've done enough. Who are you, when I come with such a generous offer, to demand a sign of me? This is the sort of point that Jesus is making here. But verse 4, there is one sign. A wicked and adulterous generation looks for a miraculous sign, but none will be given it except the sign of Jonah. Well, he's already defined that. Let's just flip back just a couple of pages very quickly. Chapter 12, verse 39. Uh, very quickly, chapter 12, verse 39. He's defined the sign of Jonah. Again, you see, the Pharisees had come to him. Chapter 12, verse 38, very similar. Teacher, we want to see a miraculous sign from you. This is not a new question they're asking. 
He answered, a wicked and adulterous generation asks for a miraculous sign. None will be given it except the the sign of the prophet Jonah. For as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of a huge fish, so the Son of Man will be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. Now some debate over what that means, but I think as a minimum he's saying, I'll rise from the dead. I'll be three days in the earth and then I'll rise again. Jonah, three days in the fish, then he emerged. I'll be in the earth, three days I'll rise again. I'm not giving you a miraculous sign. I don't perform them to order. Those won't persuade you, but I will rise again. And if you want to, if you're in any doubt, look at my resurrection. If you're uncertain about who Jesus is, don't demand signs from him. He doesn't put up the billboard poster. Power, healings, miracle. He says, I've performed my sign in history. Go to it. Read of it. All the gospel accounts have it. The letters that I've recorded in the scriptures have accounts of it. You can investigate it historically. If you don't, if you say, oh, I haven't got time for that. If you've dismissed Jesus without doing that, I'm a little embarrassed, but I think he'd say, you're an adulterous person. There is a dishonesty to you. If you reject me without looking at my claims, without reading an account of my life, and crucially, my death and resurrection, and you still reject me, there's a dishonesty to you. You're not really interested in who I am. Have you done that? Christianity Explored is a great place to do that. Uh, there's plenty of books. This is a very good one. Uh, I remember reading a number of years ago. It's on the bookstall. The Truth About Jesus, The Challenge of Evidence. I mean, read a gospel account of his life first. But this is a terrific book, looking at the historical evidence for the life of Jesus, and a good chunk about it is on his resurrection, The Truth About Jesus, Paul Barnett. Well, I don't want to spend money on a book. Really? Or one? Are you honest in your search? Really? Two, I'll pay for it. Come and find me. Okay? So there's the first thing that Jesus says. Don't demand signs. Oh, accept the resurrection. End of verse 4, then Jesus left them and went away. And I think in Matthew's Gospel, that's not just geographical. He leaves them. But judicially, he's leaving the religious authorities. And mostly, he's leaving them now. That's it. That's it. Instead, he's going to pursue uh, his disciples. But they get it a little wrong as well. So uh, first thing, don't demand signs of Jesus. Second thing, beware the yeast. And in particular, that's beware the yeast of domesticating him. Now, this is a funny little conversation, isn't it? Uh, chapter 16 and verse 5, beware the yeast. When they went across the lake, the disciples forgot to take bread. Be careful, Jesus said to them. Be on your guard against the yeast of the Pharisees and Sadducees. They discussed this among themselves and said, is this because we didn't bring any bread with us? Aware of their little discussion, Jesus asked, sorry, aware of their discussion, Jesus asked, you have little faith. Why are you talking among yourselves about having no bread? It's very bizarre. Oh, we forgot the bread. Watch out for the yeast. We forgot the bread. I am not talking about bread. Now what's going on here? Well, there's clearly a danger. I mean, they probably were talking about bread and then not got it, but Jesus comes in, be careful that you, 
Be careful to guard against the yeast of the Pharisees and Sadducees. He's going to say verse 12. That's their teaching. Now, what have they just taught? Chapter 16, 1 to 4. They've taught that you need some sort of miraculous sign. So it's not entirely clear, but probably they're wavering. Who is Jesus? We're not entirely sure. He's saying, well, don't be swayed by them. Let me try and unpack it a little bit. Two questions, I think, which are unwrap it. The first is, what is the yeast of the Pharisees? And then secondly, what is the mistake of the disciples? Two questions, I think, break it down. First then, what is what actually is the yeast of the Pharisees? Well, this uh, in Matthew's Gospel, he writes of the Pharisees and Sadducees five times. Four of those, uh, when he puts them together, four of them are here in uh, these uh, this little section here. And it is odd to put them together. So, if you'll forgive me, a little bit of caricature. Uh, the Sadducees, then, they're the aristocrats, politicians, very conservative, very narrow reading of uh, the Jewish Torah, um, anti-supernatural, didn't believe in angels, didn't believe in resurrection, and uh, they disliked foreign rulers and, and working with foreign rulers. In an absurd caricature, you could think of them as a combination of UKIP and a liberal bishop in the Church of England. It's a very bizarre comment, but that's kind of where, it, if that works for you, great. It works for none of you. I'm looking at your faces. None of you get that. Forget that. Okay. But the, they're, the, they're the Sadducees. The Pharisees, they're more populist. Uh, they love adding to the Bible. They love traditions. The Bible is good. The Old Testament's good. But what about, what about Rabbi uh, Yusuf and he, what he used to come out with? And what about uh, 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 Rabbi Gamaliel? What about him? And they keep adding traditions to. So they, they're more populist. And they keep adding to the scriptures. So you, this won't work either. You might think of them a combination of the Vatican and X Factor. Popular. Yeah, that doesn't work either. Okay. It's okay. It's okay. But the significant thing is here, these two groups, they're completely different. The Sadducees, they taught no resurrection, no afterlife, no such thing as angelic powers of the supernatural. Pharisees saying, yeah, there's resurrection, yeah, there's afterlife, yeah, there's the super... They don't teach the same thing. When Jesus says, beware the teaching of the Pharisees and the Sadducees, what is he saying? Because it's completely opposing truths that they're teaching. Beware the politics of the Labour Party and the Conservative Party. What do I do with that? What is he saying here? Well, again, in context, what have they tried to do? They're demanding a sign of Jesus. They want him on their terms. And although their teaching is different, there's a sense in which they're trying to domesticate him. You put it this way. So, again, this is an oversimplification, but the Pharisees really were Bible plus tradition. The Sadducees were Bible minus supernatural. Now, both of those are trying to have Jesus on your own terms. And people still do that. So people want Bible plus tradition. So uh, Jesus will forgive you if you get a rosary uh, and um, flick through the beads and say Hail Mary 12 times. Well, that's, that's nonsense. Forgive me, but that's, tr- that's not biblical. You're just wanting Jesus on your own terms. You dictate to him how he'll forgive you. It's not what he says. And of course, some want Bible minus supernatural. So tragically, this is about eight years ago now, but tragically, the the last time there was a survey of Church of England clergy and their beliefs, 
A third of Church of England clergy did not believe in the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, from the dead, physical resurrection. That's awful, isn't it? A third didn't believe in the physical resurrection. One man, um, Reverend Nick Henderson, commented, clergy faced with intelligent and educated congregations increasingly had to think very carefully about how to present complex doctrine credibly. Which means either you're not intelligent and educated, or I'm not thinking carefully. Because I'm unembarrassed to say, of course he rose physically from the dead. Of course he did. But you see, on both of those ways, if you add tradition to Jesus and you take away the supernatural, you're wanting him on your terms. You're not accepting him on his terms. So what is the yeast of the Pharisees? I think I'd describe it as domesticating Jesus. You take him on your terms. But he won't have that. Jesus will not fit neatly into your life. He never will. We'll see next week. He says, if you're going to follow me, it will cost you everything. You can't domesticate me. So that's the teaching of the Pharisees. What then is the uh, the mistake, uh, the actual mistake that the disciples are making? Well, presumably they're drifting into a similar attitude as the Pharisees and Sadducees because they're being told to be on their guard against it. The presenting issue, of course, is bread. But look how Jesus criticizes them in verse 8. Aware of their disgust, and Jesus said, you have little faith. Why are you talking about among yourselves about having no bread? Notice, he doesn't say, oh, you of little brain. Oh, you of little understanding. Oh, you of little intelligence. Oh, you of little IQ. Do you not get it? He says, the issue is your faith is too small. Well, that's interesting. He's saying, how can you worry about bread when I am with you? Can we just recap a little of the events of the last few days? Uh, verse 9. Don't you remember for the five loaves for the 5,000, how many basketfuls were gathered? That'll be 12. Or oh, the seven loaves for the 4,000, how many basketfuls you gathered? That'll be seven. Um, let's just do some maths here. Five loaves of bread, 5,000 people, plenty left over. Okay. Thirteen of us. I think I'll be all right. I think I'll be all right. The issue here is your lack of faith. So I I can put it this way. I think there's a very practical lesson here for followers of Jesus. I think Jesus is saying to them, "Don't, don't look at what you have. Look at who you have. You're asking the wrong question here. You're asking what? are we going to do about the lack of bread? You should be asking, who is this man? He can provide. So we ask the wrong questions. We ask what questions? What What am I going to do to get through my work this week? What am I going to do to survive my new university? What am I going to do uh, when I've racked up so much debt? What am I going to do? And Jesus, no, no, don't, you're forgetting who I am. I can feed 5,000 people with five loaves of bread. Who? Who is my Lord Jesus? Okay, I'll be all right. Seems to be their mistake. We need to be asking not what, what are we going to do about this, but who, who is this man? We'll be okay with him. 
Don't domesticate Jesus. So verses 5 to 12, beware the yeast. I think that's a good way of putting it, of domesticating Jesus. Don't take away from the supernatural. Don't add with tradition. Or like the disciples, don't just expect too little of him. Don't domesticate him. Be wary of that. So those are the two mistakes to avoid. Beware the yeast of domesticating Jesus. Uh, Don't demand signs. But uh, the positive thing, trust the confession. Trust the confession. Verses 13 to 20. Here's the positive thing we're to learn. Uh, Chapter 16, verse 13. When Jesus came to the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked these disciples, who do people say I am? They replied, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, still others Jeremiah, one of the prophets. What about you? Who do you say that I am? And Peter, Simon Peter, he's fabulous. He's the blurter. You know, he's always the blurter. Can I encourage you, as in your, in your, just as a complete tangent and random one, um, in your small, in your Bible study groups, be a blurter. Everyone loves the blurter who just throws out the answer. It doesn't know if it's right or wrong. It just gets everyone going. It's great. Be like Peter. Tangent over. Um, Simon Peter gets it right. You're the Christ. You're the Son of the living God. You are the King promised in the Old Testament. You're the one. You're the king over everything. You reign over all. All the gospel accounts, the other synoptic gospel accounts are very clear on that. Matthew is unique in having these verses 17 to 19. And uh, three quick things I think we're meant to learn here. Uh, The first is this. What is the primacy of Peter? Verse 17. Blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for this was not revealed to you by man, but by my father in heaven. And I tell you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not prevail against it. First thing to learn, then, the primacy of Peter. What is he talking about here? As the little footnote tells you, there's a, there's a play on words here. You are Petros, and on this Petra I will build my church. It's like Jesus is saying, you're rocky, and upon the rock I'm going to build the church. It's that sort of little uh, little play on words uh, that he's making uh, here. Now, what does that mean? Now, a number will know, of course, the, the Roman Catholic Church has taken this statement as binding not purely upon Peter, but upon all of Peter's successors as Bishop of Rome or Pope, and says the Pope is the one upon whom the church is built. Now that is, can I suggest, a strange reading of this. The first reason is, he, Jesus doesn't say, you are Peter, and on this rock... And all the ones that come after you, I will build my church. It's very clear, upon this the rock, as he looks at Peter, there's something unique and peculiar about him. It's nothing about his successors. And also you cannot separate verse 18 from the two that come before it. Simon, Peter says, he comes out with this massively significant declaration in Matthew's Gospel, you're the Christ, the Son of the living God. No one's got that before. And Jesus says, yes, that is correct. That has been revealed to you by God the Father, and upon you now, and that confession you have made, now you've got that, I'm going to build the church upon you, and the confession that you've made there. 
So there's a sense in which what is Jesus? Peter is the first brick that's laid. He's the first one who says, you're the Christ. You're the promised one. He's the first brick in the building. You and I are also bricks. So there's, of course, he has a historical primacy. He's the first one to get the answer right, to identify Jesus. But that's it. That's his primacy. So nothing more than that. Okay, primacy of Peter. Let's pick up space. Uh, the second thing we meant, we meant to learn, I think, is the security of the church. Jesus says, I'll build my church upon you. The gates of Hades, or hell, will not overcome it. Uh, I guess Hades, or hell, or the powers of death. They will not overcome the church. My church will not die. I am king over everything. I'm investing my authority in the church. It will never be destroyed. Think of it this way. The uh, third and last Lord of the Rings film. Um, there's the funny old scene at the end when the computer, char- the computer people, the CGI guys go crazy. Um, and uh, it's very near the end, the first ending. Obviously, there's several. Uh, very near the end. And uh, Aragorn... Uh, takes all the men of Gondor and Rohan. If you've not seen it, golly, this make, will make no sense. Uh, he's got about 2,000 men, and they march to the gates of Mordor. 2,000 of them. And slowly the gates creak open, and in the book, 300,000 orcs come out against 2,000 men. And the odds are obviously ridiculous. But Aragorn, he's the king, so obviously he's got a good speech mapped out, and he inspires them. Hold your ground, my brothers, my brothers, men of Gondor and Rohan. I see in your eyes the same fear that would take the heart of me. Not this day, not this day, this day we fight. By all that you hold dear on this good earth, I bid you stand. And uh, there's some sort of naff gags between Legolas and Gimli. Um... <laughs> And uh, then they have a good old scrap. And um, and the, sort of the, the computer-generated stuff goes crazy. Uh, but then Frodo destroys the ring and the gates crumble to dust. And everyone runs away. But Jesus is saying so much more, uh, dare I put it, uh, obviously than Aragorn. Men and women of my church... I am your king. I live forever. My church will not be destroyed. Be encouraged. Everything else will crumble to dust and fade. The church is mine. It's safe. Don't worry. Now, isn't that encouraging? Isn't that encouraging if... Um, you're the church, I don't know if you saw the news this afternoon, the church attacked in Nairobi, Kenya, this morning. Another attack, a grenade thrown through the window, three children dead. Death toll will go up, probably. And you think, that's the 30th in the past few months grenade attack upon a church in that country. And Jesus says to them, do not fear. You may die, you'll be with me. My church will never die. Don't fear. Isn't that encouraging? Thank God, yeah, the situation in our country is nothing like that, of course. But he would say to us, don't fear. Do not fear. 
the primacy of Peter, the security of the church. This is the last thing now. The power of the gospel. The power of the gospel. Verse 19. You're meant to notice this. So uh, Jesus says to Peter, I'll give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. Whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. The footnote is helpful there. That's a better translation. It's not that Peter does something and heaven reacts, but whatever you bind on earth will have been bound in heaven. Peter is just demonstrating what has already taken place in God's counsels. Now, verse 19 is obviously not a literal thing. Peter, I'll give you the keys of the kingdom. That is not obviously a physical thing. It's not as if, you know, a couple of years later, Peter says to his wife, Mrs. Peter, have you seen the keys? Have you seen the keys to the kingdom? I left them on the table. I left them on the table, and now I've lost the keys to the kingdom, and now we're really... Obviously, he's not saying that. They're in your coat pocket, dear. Uh, He's not saying that. What is he saying? What does he mean by the keys of the kingdom? Well, again, I think the answer must be in verse 16. Peter has confessed that Jesus is the Christ, the Messiah, and therefore he is given the keys of the kingdom. The keys are proclaiming that Jesus is the King, the promised Messiah who will reign over all. The keys are proclaiming the message of Jesus Christ. And the Pharisees were shutting the door. So just to just demonstrate that, two quick things, two quick little cross-references. First, in Matthew 23, a few chapters later, Jesus can say, Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites! You shut the kingdom of heaven in men's faces. You yourselves do not enter, nor will you let those who enter, who are trying to. So they're shutting the door. Or uh, again, similarly in Luke chapter 11. We got that? Woe to you experts in the law because you've taken away the key to knowledge. You yourselves have not entered. You've hindered those who are entering. Do you see what Jesus is saying? Peter has confessed that he is the Christ, the Messiah, and therefore that is the key that can open the door to heaven. Or to put it even more simply, whenever Jesus, the Messiah, is proclaimed, the door to heaven swings open. If you reject him, the door swings shut. So as you hear Jesus tonight, who wouldn't yet profess faith, the door is open for you. If you reject him, the door shuts. And Jesus says to Peter, you've got the keys to do that. Jesus dies, rises again, commissions his apostles. And what do we see Peter doing in Acts? Acts chapter 2, on the day of Pentecost, he preaches, repent and be baptized for the forgiveness of sins. The door swings open. 3,000 people become Christians that day. A couple of chapters later in chapter 4, he stands before the Pharisees and the Sadducees, preaches the gospel. They say, get out. The door swings shut on them. It's precisely what you see happen in his ministry. So for you, for us... When you hear the gospel message, the door swings open. When, if you're a Christian, when you share who Jesus Christ is with someone who doesn't know it, do you realize he is God's son? He is Lord over everything. As we'll see next week, he's died so that forgiveness of sins is available. When you do that, when you share that very simple message with someone, the door swings open. Now, what they do with it, they can walk through or they can let it shut. Do you realize that 
We have the keys in that sense. Isn't that a privilege? How extraordinary. Uh, years ago, when um, my son was about 18 months old, uh, my, I don't know where we were, but my mum was looking after him. And I uh, went off for a walk and um, came back to the house and we got steps up to our house. So she's, you know, a bit heavy to pull the buggy up the steps. So she took uh, our son out of the uh, buggy, took him up into the house and uh, then went back down for the buggy and the door slammed shut and her keys were inside. Ooh, 18 months crawling, getting around, knives, scissors, uh, panic sets in. So uh, my mum was being a bit embarrassed, didn't call, uh, but phoned the fire brigade. And um, so phoned the fire brigade, fire brigade came. Okay, madam, uh, yes, we can hear the baby crying inside. What would you like us to do? We can't get in the back. We can get in, but we'll have to break down the front door. At this point, my mum thought, mm, maybe I'll check. And so phoned. Don't panic, mother. Go to the buggy. There's a big wire coil, you'll see on the end of the coil a book that's chewed half to pieces and the front door key which we leave on the buggy why don't you use that (laughs) and so of course much apologies to fireman, she takes the key and the door swings open she had it all the time if you're a Christian The key to the kingdom is proclaiming who Jesus Christ is. You've got it. You've got it all the time. Don't leave the door shut on others. If you won't call yourself a Christian, go through. It's there. The door is open. Who is Jesus Christ? He's the king over everything. But don't demand a sign from him. Don't try and domesticate him. Come to him. Trust him. As Lord over this whole world. Lord over your life. Trust him. Let me lead us in prayer. Our Father, where we're confused about who Jesus is, would you take away that confusion so we can see him clearly? For those of us who have known him for years, would we recognize the wonderful security he promises to his church here? The wonderful privilege of being able to proclaim him and seeing the door of the kingdom swing open. We avail ourselves of these things as we trust in him as our Lord. We thank you so much that Jesus is the Christ. Amen.